Well, good morning. If you don't know me, my name is Lucas Cooper. I'm the lead pastor here at Bayview Glen. We're thrilled that you're here this morning. I got an email from a friend of mine at my uh, previous church this week who invited me to uh, read a manuscript and endorse a book. The book was about cross-cultural ministry and multi-ethnic ministry, and I've been pastoring in a multi-ethnic environment now for eight whole months, and he's asked me to endorse a book. They're really, really scraping the bottom of the barrel. So I googled uh, this missions organization that he works for called Mission One, and um, you know, typically that for, if you Google something really specific, that first hit that you get on Google is uh, pretty. You know, it's likely that that that's you know, if you Google something really specific, that first hit is is what you want. So I clicked on the first link, and I did not get a mission organization. I got an organization called Mars One, not Mission One. Mars One. I want to show you the website here. This is the front page of the Mars One website. On that first slide, you guys got that first slide there? Is it on there? There you go. There's the front page of the Mars One. This is not Mission One, where my friend works. This is Mars One. This, this, is, the, uh, this is the mission statement of Mars One. It is Mars One's goal to establish a human settlement on Mars. Human settlement of Mars is the next giant leap for mankind. I was unaware. Exploring the solar system as a united humanity will bring us all closer together. See, that's the thing. It brings us farther apart. You know where Mars is. Um, (laughs) Mars is the stepping stone of the human race on its voyage to the universe. Human settlement on Mars will aid in our understanding of the origins of the solar system, the origins of life, and our place in the universe. As with the Apollo moon landings, A mission to Mars will inspire generations to believe all things are possible. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. If you're part of the Mars One organization, I'm really sorry. Um, Inspire inspire generations that all things are possible and anything can be achieved. I honestly wonder if this is how the nation of Israel and David's brothers felt when he said, I think I can beat that Goliath guy. Well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. You can't, you can't establish a human settlement on Mars. You can't beat this Goliath guy. But, but, but just so we're clear this morning, because we're talking about David conquering Goliath, and spoiler, spoiler alert, he wins. He actually conquers Goliath. I want to say to the Mars One people, you go, Mars settlers. Conquer your Goliath. You can do it. Good luck and God be with you. But I'm thinking that when David said, I can beat this Goliath guy, it just seemed absurd. It just seemed silly to those he said, look, I at 12 years old can step out into this valley and conquer a man who's nine foot nine inches tall. But that is exactly what we're talking about this morning in our series called A King and a Kingdom, Lessons from the Life of David. This interaction between David and Goliath has become a bit of an epic tale of heroism. It's the quintessential little guy and the quintessential big guy. We hear the story used as a representative example and even an encouragement that anything is possible, even establishing a human settlement on Mars. We say you can conquer your Goliath. We use it in sports. We use it in business. We use it in personal development. But this story of David and Goliath isn't just an archetypal story that was made up to encourage the little guy. It actually happened. And it's included in the Bible for two reasons. One, to encourage those who read and understand it. And two, because it's, it's a turning point 
in the life of David. It is an absolute hinge for David as he changes and God begins to kind of grow him and open doors for him and, and, and he gains notoriety in Israel and, and walks into this way that God, and walks through this door that God has opened for him. Up to now, all we know of David is that he's the youngest of a bunch of brothers. And he's been anointed king of Israel. And that anointing was rather unceremonious. We'll talk about it next week, but it was rather unceremonious to say the least. So far, uh, so David is far from heroic when we get to 1 Samuel 17. But things are about to change for David. Remember where we find the nation of Israel. For those of you who were here last week, they played the comparison game, remember? They rejected God as king, and they brought in a king named Saul. As for Saul, he tends to panic and take matters into his own hands and only obey some of what God says. And when he fails, he plays the blame game. He blames other people for his mistakes. This does not serve Saul well. And though God has purpose to replace Saul with David, Saul is still king in Israel when we hit chapter 17. Everybody get that? Saul is still king in Israel when we hit chapter 17, and he's expected to act like it. So when chapter 17 opens, we find King Saul and the armies of Israel encamped on one side of the valley of Elah. The nation or the Philistines are encamped on the other side of the valley of Elah. Now get this, the the nation of Israel has just recently rallied 12 nomadic tribes to form a nation. They're mostly shepherds and farmers. The Philistines on the other side of the valley are ruthless, battle-scarred, highly trained warriors. They eat Israelites for lunch. It's it's like the organic farmers in skinny jeans and fanny packs against really big barbarians with really big swords. This is not good for Israel. And things go from bad to worse really quickly. If you've got your Bibles, open it up. 1 Samuel 17, we'll start in verse 4. If you don't have your Bibles, the scripture is up on the screen. You can grab that Bible out of the seat back in front of you. We'll be in 1 Samuel 17, verse 4. Picture it with me now. The nation of Israel encamped on one side of the valley and the the Philistines encamped on the other. Verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. Two items of note from verses 4 through 7. First, the Philistines want to engage in a very common practice called champion warfare. Here's how it works. Two armies draw up for battle, and rather than engaging the entire army, each army sends out their best soldier for a no-holds-barred, winner-take-all battle to the death. This is why Scripture calls Goliath a champion. It's not a term of endearment. It's not a compliment. It's a neutral statement of fact. Goliath is the champion that the Philistines have sent out. He's their representative, and he's going to challenge an Israelite champion. The second interesting piece of verses 4 through 7 are the stats on Goliath. How many of you can, can, um, do, can, can do math and, and, uh, and convert shekels 
and uh, cubits. How many of you can do that real quickly? Thank you, Maggot. Perfect. Can you really? Oh, he's got a Blackberry. That's cheating. <laughs> I know. That's a great point. That's a great point. Sorry, Mag and I just kind of have a personal conversation while everybody listens, apparently. So here's the deal. Here are the stats on Goliath. I did the conversions from shekels and cubits. Uh, Goliath is nine foot nine inches tall. Six cubits in a span. He's nine foot nine. If you add up all the shekels there, a Goliath is probably wearing close to 200 pounds of armor. He's wearing more armor than what I weigh. The scripture lists a helmet a coat of mail, and bronze armor on his legs. The coat of mail alone weighed over 150 pounds. Goliath is also carrying weapons, the first of which is a javelin he has slung between his shoulders. This was probably something like a sickle, like what the Grim Reaper carries. He's also carrying a spear. The head of the spear alone weighs 15 pounds. It says that his spear is like a weaver's beam. A weaver's beam was about the size of a fat end of a baseball bat. And he saunters out into the valley of Elah. For those of you Jeopardy fans, this is the longest description of a warrior that we have in any literature of antiquity. Longest description of a warrior. Clearly, the author of scripture wants us to focus on Goliath for a moment. To know that this is a very big man carrying very, very nasty weapons. So some of you, if you're a skeptic, you might be thinking, really? This guy is nine foot nine inches tall, please. But before you scoff, I want you to know that archaeologists have uncovered quite a bit of evidence to suggest that warriors of this size are not simply a figment of Israelite imagination. They're not simply a result of embellished legends. The Egyptian letter on Papyrus Anastasi from 13th century B.C., talks about warriors in the land of Canaan between seven and nine feet tall. Additionally, archaeologists have discovered two skeletons over seven feet tall in the biblical city of Zarethan, where the Hebrews crossed the Jordan River. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, over seven feet tall, two skeletons over seven feet tall, that's like not that big a deal. There's players in the NBA that are that big. Let me ask you this. Are there players in the WNBA that are that big? Because those two skeletons were female. Archaeologists have uncovered evidence. Archaeological evidence affirms the biblical record. This man is a giant. He's nine foot nine inches tall. He's wearing 200 pounds of armor, and he's a nasty, gnarly dude. And look at the last sentence of verse 7. I love this. Look at the last, second half of verse 7. What does it say? It says, his shield bearer went before him. I, I want to ask the scripture, is this really necessary? Like, is this man not scary enough? That he's got to send a little pipsqueak like me out there. I'll carry your shield, you know. That makes him more scary. This is a frightening, terrifying human being. Let's keep reading. Verse 8. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel. Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Stop there. Who are they servants of? Yahweh. He's mocking them. Verse 9. If he is able to, uh, sorry, choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. Verse 9. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. 
But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. He's outlining the stipulations of champion warfare. Verse 10. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And the scripture says that for 40 days, this beast named Goliath saunters into the valley of Elah, defies God and his people twice every day. First thing in the morning and last thing at night. And how do Saul and Israel respond? Look at verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Two words in that sentence give us a very clear picture of how Saul and Israel are feeling at this moment. The first of those words is dismayed. It's highlighted on the screen for you, dismayed. It actually means shattered. Saul and Israel were coming apart on the inside with fear. That's what the author of scripture wants us to know. The second word is this, greatly afraid. The original Hebrew word for greatly afraid implies that the people had actually gone a little bit crazy. The armies of Israel were beside themselves with terror. Their fear is driving them insane, literally. So what is it that the scripture wants us to know about this man, Goliath? What is it that the scripture wants us to know about the Israelite response to Goliath? Here it is, and if you're jotting notes down, jot this down for me. Goliath is every Israelite nightmare come true. He is the unconquerable enemy. Goliath is every Israelite nightmare come true. He is the unconquerable enemy. And for 40 straight days and nights... Goliath mocks Israel, and he mocks their God. I just want to pause and ask you a question. Is there something in your life that's like that? It's the first thing you think of in the morning and the last thing on your mind at night. It feels like fear might sometimes be driving you crazy, shattering you on the inside. It's the part of your life that stands in front of you and defies the living God. And fear cripples you from doing anything about it. It's the one thing, that one thing that dominates your thoughts and robs your joy. Is it your past? Perhaps it's something you're afraid might happen in the future. Is it unemployment? Is it sexual abuse? Is it depression? Is it addiction? Is it a love for a spouse that has grown cold? Is it a wayward child? Is it people you can't please, a dead-end job you can't escape, a future that seems too difficult to face? Perhaps your own personal Goliath doesn't stomp into a valley armed with a spear and a sickle. Perhaps your Goliath shows up in your office, your bedroom, or the quietness of your heart. But make no mistake, we all face a Goliath, don't we? We all face an enemy that seems unconquerable. So our sermon series this summer is called A King and a Kingdom, Lessons from the Life of David. And the scripture we studied last week didn't even mention him by name. And we haven't mentioned his name yet today. So pick up the story in verse 12, our very first glimpse of the man we're studying this summer. Verse 12, 1 Samuel 17. Now David was the son of of an Ephrathite in Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. 
In the days of Saul, the man, that's Jesse, was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn. Next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. And also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. So here's the deal. David's three oldest brothers, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shammah, have gone off to war with Saul. And their dad, Jesse, does what dads do. He worries. So he calls his youngest boy, David, in from the fields where he's caring for his dad's sheep. And he demotes him. From shepherd boy to grocery boy. And he tells David, take this cheese and bread to your brothers and bring me something that proves they're doing well. So off David goes to take these groceries to his brothers. You ever wonder why David isn't in the army like his brothers? As far as scholars can tell, David is around 12 years old at this time. He does not meet the minimum age requirement to be in the Israelite army. So while 12-year-old David is delivering groceries per his father's request, pick it up in verse 23. As he, that's David, talked with them, that's his brothers, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. So David hears the very same challenge that the nation of Israel had now heard 80 times. 40 days, morning and night. 80. But David responds in a very interesting way. You can go back and read this uh, throughout the week. We're not going to read it this morning, but you can go back and read 1 Samuel 17. Here's what the conversation looks like after David hears this challenge. David doesn't ask, what's going on, or what's Saul's plan, or what are we going to do? Here's David's question. Who gets to kill this guy, and what does he get once he's dead? That's David's question. Who gets the honor of killing this guy, and what's the reward after he's dead? David is resolute and confident. In David's mind, no one, and I mean no one, stands against God's purposes. And it's not a question of if Goliath is going down. It's just a question of who gets the honor and what's the reward. His brother Eliab is not so supportive. He actually accuses David of coming down to gawk at the battle. And then he reminds David with a very disparaging remark, you're just a nobody, you're a simple little shepherd boy. Eliab says to David, no way, no how, not you, not now, not anybody, not ever. Eliab is the voice of fear and not faith. If you're jotting notes down, jot that down for me. Eliab is the voice of fear and not faith. David says, who gets the honor of killing this guy, and what's the reward? Eliab makes fun of his brother, and he accuses him of coming down to gawk at the battle. Eliab is the voice of fear and not faith. Have you ever felt that way? You know, there's this moment in your life where you start to believe God. 
that he might actually slay your Goliath. You trust him. You're confident. You're not asking if. You're only asking what's the reward on the other side of this trial look like. And just as those words exit your mouth, another voice comes to call, and it's a voice of fear. Maybe it's a so-called friend or acquaintance. Maybe it's a boss that doesn't believe in you. Maybe it's an ex-boyfriend or girlfriend or an ex-spouse. And like David's brother Eliab, they think you're nuts for believing God. They think you're nuts for resting on his promises. They think your faith in God is a pipe dream and it won't ever work out. Or maybe, just maybe, you're not the David in this story. Maybe you're the Eliab, pushing back against a friend or a family member that is believing God for great things. Maybe that voice isn't a literal voice at all. Maybe it's the voice of your past saying you'll never change. Maybe it's the voice of fear saying, this is too big for me. This is too big for God. Maybe it's the voice of shame saying you're worthless. I don't know what that voice is for you that says that the enemy you face is too big for God. That voice of fear and not faith. But I will tell you two things. One, that voice is absolutely dead wrong. And we'll see why in a minute. Number two, if you feel like you're striving to believe God for great things and a voice of fear pushes back against you as you believe God for great things and somebody says, I don't know, I don't think so, and they doubt you and they think you're crazy, you have found a friend in young David. David doesn't listen to that voice. <laughs> Pick it up in verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and Saul sent for David. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant, that's me, will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. In other words, he's been killing guys as long as you've been alive, slick. This is not going to work out well. Verse 34, David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear, not necessarily the kind of lion or bear that we think of today, but wild animals, and took a lamb from the flock, verse 35, I went after him, struck him, and delivered my sheep out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Verse 37, and David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. <laughs> you laugh, that's the tone in the text. Nobody else wants to do it. Let's just roll the dice on this 12-year-old. But ain't nobody else is going to do it. Get what's going on here. Remember, Saul is king in Israel, and he's expected to behave that way. Saul has God's promises, just like David does. Saul knows God is faithful, just like David does. And remember what we know about Saul. He's a head taller than anyone else in Israel. So who should step into the valley and fight Goliath? Saul. 
He's the right choice physically. He's king in Israel. And he has all the same promises David does. But Saul is afraid. Saul panics just like he did before. Saul forgets about God's promises and faithfulness, and so does everyone else in Israel. So the best they can do is send a 12-year-old grocery delivery boy out to face their worst nightmare. Saul's best suggestion is, let's put my armor on him. But remember, Saul's a head taller than everybody else, and David is only 12. How do you think David looked? Yeah, like a toddler wearing his dad's suit. David's even having a hard time moving around with all the armor on him. The scripture tells us that. So he casts it off and he chooses a weapon that he is much more familiar with. Five smooth stones and a homemade sling. David knows he's going into God's battle. And he's not interested in fighting God's battle with man's armor. David chooses a much simpler weapon. Five stones that didn't need forging or sharpening. Tools that had already been tested and usable in the hands of God. For us, we can take a cue from David. We can learn that conquering our own Goliath does not mean some fancy new self-help program or even the latest Christian book. Conquering Goliath means using the same tools that have been tested time and time again. Don't put on the armor of the world when you face your Goliath. Fight God's battles with God's weapons. Fight God's battles with God's weapons. Pick up the smooth stones of prayer and confession, scripture, worship, fellowship with other believers. The smooth stones of humility, love, patience, and an unrelenting pursuit of the spirit of the living God. Facing your own Goliath isn't the time to try out new tactics. Use what has been tested and approved. Fight God's battles with God's weapons. So now picture this with me. Two nations face each other on opposite sides of a valley. For 40 days and for 40 nights, a champion, a giant, a Goliath has mocked Israel and their God. And for 40 days, Israel has done nothing. And on day 40, Israel finally acts. They send their best. A 12-year-old shepherd boy demoted to grocery boy. This is their best. No armor, no spear, no shield. Goliath has been killing people as long as David has been alive. But with the promises of the living God as his weapons, David, ruddy and handsome, strolls into the valley of Elah. Let's read how the story ends, verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you would come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. If that song was out that we sang this morning, 
in 1 Samuel 17, you could hear it playing in the background, right? The God of angel armies is all, sorry. I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly, that includes Israel and the Philistines, may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and a spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and swung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and Goliath fell on his face to the ground. Listen close. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him there was no sword in the hand of David praise God the trouble with applying this passage is that people tend to kind of pick whatever they want for their own personal Goliath you know they do the my Goliath is that I don't have a brand new Bentley oh God please overcome my Goliath and get me a Bentley We can't just pick whatever Goliath we want. There are even entire theological grids built upon the idea that God's blessings are contingent upon and even in direct proportion to my faith. I simply don't buy it. And no respectable evangelical scholar does either. But unfortunately, when we're skeptical, we tend to overreact and the pendulum swings too far the other way. So in this case, people misapply the passage by naming whatever they want a Goliath and claiming that God will overcome it. That's not how it works. But I want to be very clear here. Though I would reject an application of of this passage that says, call whatever you want a Goliath and God will beat it for you, I also don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and forfeit the richness and hope that is in this passage. So with that in mind, here's our bottom line truth today from the story of David and Goliath. If you're jotting notes down, if you, if, you, if you remember nothing else, this is it. Write it down. God is still in the business of conquering Goliaths. God is absolutely, without a doubt, unequivocally still in the business of conquering Goliaths. He does so for his glory so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. He does not do so for our comfort. He uses the weak of this world just like he used David to conquer what the world sees as strong and invincible. He demonstrates his sovereignty, power, rule, and authority by blowing up Goliaths that push back against his purpose. He did it then and he can do it for you now. One question this morning that I want you to walk away with. What's your Goliath? What is your Goliath? What is it that mocks God in your life morning and night? What seems too overwhelming, too invincible? What is your unconquerable enemy? Let this story today be a beacon of hope for you that God is still in the business 
of conquering Goliaths. Here's what we're going to do next week. We're going to do part two. We're going to do part two of David and Goliath. And we're going to unpack what it means to put ourselves, to place ourselves, to position ourselves so that God might conquer a Goliath on our behalf. So that God might conquer a Goliath in and through us. But today, I just want you to walk away with hope. God can overcome your worst nightmare. You are more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. He rules and reigns and we reign with him. No weapon formed against us shall prosper. Why? Because God is still in the business of conquering Goliaths. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we can have hope. He's been doing this Goliath conquering thing for a very, very long time. Thousands and thousands of years. God has been overcoming Goliaths to demonstrate his glory and sovereignty on behalf of those whom he loves. And that's you, and that's me. We can live in hope, knowing that God is still in the business of conquering Goliaths. Next week, we're going to unpack, there's so much in this text, absolutely so much. Feel free to read ahead. Feel free to read ahead, 1 Samuel 17. What we're going to talk about is what did David do to put himself in that position that God would use him, that God would conquer a Goliath? What did he do to position himself to, to kind of let God be free to do something great so that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel? And we're going to take an example from David next week. But for now, walk away today knowing that God is still in the business of conquering Goliaths. You know that the Bible says that Jesus will reign on the throne of David? Did you know that? That he will reign on the throne of David? In other words, David is a picture of what's to come in Jesus. David is a picture of what's to come in Jesus. And the greatest Goliath that was ever conquered was sin and death. And that's exactly what we celebrate when we receive communion together. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, and he said, this bread is my body, which is given for you, take and eat in remembrance of me. He said, this cup represents a new covenant that is in my blood, take and drink in remembrance of me. David conquering Goliath foreshadowed Christ conquering sin and hell and death. We'll take a look at what exactly what that is in the New Testament as our uh, series unfolds this summer. But just know this, that the greatest Goliath that ever went down was sin and death. And Jesus, who was foreshadowed by David, did that on our behalf. As we conclude this morning, that's what we're going to do. We're going to remember and we're going to celebrate. We're going to remember Jesus and the great lengths that he went to to conquer the Goliath of sin and death that we could never conquer on our own. If you know Christ, this is our opportunity to remember, to meditate, to reflect, to confess any known sin and be clean before God and enjoy his forgiveness and then take the bread and the cup together as a body. If you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, if you've never said yes to him, just invite you to pass on this part of the service. Just pass those elements on by you. We invite you to listen and reflect, 
But for those of you who know Christ, this is our opportunity to receive the elements together and remember that 2,000 years ago, a Goliath called death went down and he went down for good. Let's pray. God, we are grateful that you are king, that you are God. That no weapon formed against you and no weapon formed against us will prosper. Where, O oh death, is your sting? Where, O oh hell, is your victory? God, we're risen to new life in you because you've slayed a Goliath in your son, Jesus Christ. You slayed sin and hell and death by his death on the cross and three days later, his resurrection. God, this is what we remember even now as we celebrate. God, in this moment, we just confess any known sin. God, we want to enjoy your forgiveness before we go to the Lord's table. God, bless this time now. In Christ's name, amen. Ushers, if you come forward and serve us.